It's good to worship with you today. Isn't God good? Man, that was good. I want to welcome everyone in Mesa and those of you who are joining us in the chapel services, uh, as well as everyone in South Mountain. And uh, we have a lot of church family online, so I want to say welcome and uh, just remind you that we love you. We're glad you're with us. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 10, verse 13, which says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How many of you are glad you're saved? But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them. So last week I talked about sharing your faith and witnessing and spreading the good news about Jesus. And I, I said that, you know, one of the things you can do, it's so simple, anyone can do this, is just invite people to come to church with you. I mean, even if you don't know what to say, you can just bring people to come and see Jesus. Uh, and then also we talked about how you can share your testimony. Uh, Revelation says that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And that's just simply talking about what God has done for you. And I know some of you might worry about having all the right words to say, and you don't know how to answer all the difficult questions people ask you about your faith. But I wanted to encourage you today that no one can argue with your testimony. You can't debate what God has done for you, right? You're a subject matter expert on you and what God has done for you. So be confident when you share your testimony. And if you get caught up talking about your faith and someone asks you a difficult question, you can just say, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know what God has done for me. And you can share your testimony. Today I want to help you with the second part of sharing your faith, uh, which I said I would talk about, which is overcoming objections. Um, before you make any big decision in life, you're probably going to ask some difficult questions to figure out, you know, am I making the right choice? You got to dig a little bit before you commit to something, especially something as big as your faith. And it makes sense when we're talking about devoting your entire life to something that people might ask some tough questions about faith in Jesus, especially when they don't know what the Bible says. And we live in a world where there are so many competing ideas and different definitions of truth. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, so it's not always easy for people to wrap their minds around the things of God, but God can use you to share the truth of God. And so I want to talk to you about how to do that today. And if you're taking notes, you can follow along and write some of these things down, because I'm going to give you a lot of content and move pretty quick. So you might want to make some notes uh, of some things you want to come back to to follow up with and study more later. But the first thing I wanted to encourage you with is you gotta learn how to distinguish seekers from scoffers. Some people are genuinely seeking answers and other people just want to scoff. You know what I'm talking about? Let me show you an example in the Bible of a genuine seeker. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas had just been set free from chains and the prison shook uh, where they were staying and they, they, were, they were set free. And it says this in verse 29. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down before uh, tr Paul and Silas trembling. Then he brought them out and asked, look at this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This guy's a seeker, right? He's asking, how do I get what you got? 
It says, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And he did, and his household did, and they were all baptized and saved. Uh, That's awesome. This guy was clearly seeking salvation. And some people, you'll encounter them, you can just tell they're clearly looking for the truth. They're asking questions. They're open. They're curious. Not every seeker will be saved. That's true. There was a story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's a seeker. But when he heard Jesus' response, he went away sad. He did not accept what Jesus told him. But it's always worth sharing with everyone who is seeking. You plant those seeds. You know what I'm talking about? You just keep planting and you trust that God will make them grow. Uh, But then there will be times, listen, where the Holy Spirit will show you that someone is not a seeker, they're a scoffer. They're just looking to argue, to mock, to scoff. Let me show you an example of that. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus this, Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Okay, so this is Jesus responding to the Pharisees. They asked him a legit question, like, is it right to pay taxes? I know a lot of us are sitting here hoping he'd be like, no, don't pay taxes. (laughs) And that's not what he said. He was dealing with these guys' hearts, and he knew that they were not genuine. They were looking to trap him because Jesus knows the hearts of men. The book of John says that, too. He knew what was in their hearts. In the same way that Jesus knows what's in people's hearts, the Holy Spirit, who is God, knows what's in people's hearts. And you might wonder, like, well, shouldn't we try to win them over anyway, even if they're scoffing? And and I I would say maybe, uh, but probably not. And let me explain that. Maybe they're just teasing. That could be a possibility. I did say this last week that oftentimes those who mock the loudest are wrestling with God the hardest. Okay, so there are some times where people, they'll they'll make fun, they'll tease. uh, But you got to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is showing you. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. How many of you had like a real religious mom? I could just hear someone's mom in the crowd like, you shouldn't call names, Jesus. That's not very you-like. Okay, what's he talking about? All right, he's comparing unclean uh, people spiritually unclean people to unclean animals in the Jewish culture, dogs and pigs. And and he says this, he says, sometimes the shoe fits, right? Like there are certain people that, man, Jesus called them snakes. He called them fancy fancy decorated tombs uh, because he knew what was in their hearts. And he says, he makes this analogy. He says, you could give something valuable like pearls to a pig and the pig won't appreciate the value of what you gave them just any different than if it was a piece of garbage. They'll just trample it underfoot, and very likely they'll just turn and attack you for it. So it's one thing to answer tough questions, but when someone is just arguing and scoffing and not seeking truth, it's probably time to move on. You understand what I'm saying? Here's why. Because you cannot understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. Remember I said the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the seed grow. We read that passage last week. Uh, He makes the gospel spring to life in people's hearts, which is a cool thing to think about. Because if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, 
That means you are the byproduct of a supernatural miracle. You might not realize you've experienced a miracle, but you have. right? Because it is only through the working of the Holy Spirit that the gospel can spring to life in your soul. You cannot believe in Jesus without the Holy Spirit illuminating your mind to see the truth of Jesus. It says this in 1 Corinthians 12, or chapter 2, it says this, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Okay, this is really cool. We can only understand the truth of God because we have the Spirit of God inside of us who transforms us and gives us the mind of Christ, the ability to think like Christ. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is just not moving in a person, and you could try, you could make all the best arguments, you could be the most wise orator who's ever lived, and without the Holy Spirit, there will be no fruit. But thank God that the Holy Spirit did work in us. Amen. We give God all the glory for that. So let's jump into this. I want to give you uncomplicated answers to complicated questions. One of the most amazing things about being a Christian is that it's the only religion where you don't have to turn off your brain to believe. There is no question that God can't handle. There's no gotcha question that I'm hoping that people won't ask me. Because God is real. And that's because Jesus is alive. And what we believe is true. So we have no problem dealing with the arguments against Christ. And as the Apostle Paul wrote, demolishing those arguments. So let me talk about some of the questions people will raise if you try to share faith with them. Here's one. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Or maybe someone will see something tragic that happens and they'll say, I, I could never believe in a God that lets that happen. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? So first, I'm going to give you like a simple one-liner response, how I would respond to this just briefly. Uh, and then I'll give you a little bit of a longer response. My, my, my quick response would be this. God's not responsible for stopping bad things. People are responsible for doing bad things. We're the source of the problem, but Jesus is the solution. Okay. So you might notice there, I didn't actually even directly answer their question because they're asking the wrong question. And sometimes people ask the wrong question, they just don't realize it. Now let me give you a little bit longer of a response, just like a few minutes of a, a response, like if we were standing in line in, in the checkout uh, space at the store and you asked me this question and I just had a few minutes to respond to this. Uh, this question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? It's based on a false presumption to start with. We're not good people who deserve only good things. We're actually bad people who only deserve really bad things. So a better question would be, why does God let bad things happen? Let me give you a little bit of compassionate insight here first. A lot of people who ask this question have often experienced pain or some kind of suffering. And so they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, if God is good and he's loving, why didn't he save me from pain? And so I feel sympathy to people who are in that place. 
That's why you have to understand, God, he created the world good. And without sin, without pain, without suffering or death. And when the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned, the curse of sin infected all of creation. And so some of our pain comes from natural causes, like natural disasters, uh, but also nature uh, within us, our flesh. It's why we get sick and die. Uh, it's why suffering happens, because we've inherited their sinful nature, and creation is corrupted by the curse of sin. Um, this is why we're naturally sinful. We're naturally selfish. We naturally reject God. No one has to teach a toddler how to lie or how to be selfish or how to disobey. Because we have a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam, the first man. Uh, so some of our pain also comes from human hands, uh, from other people. That's because God gave humans free will. He could have programmed us to be robots who just did the right thing all the time. But you cannot have a relationship with a robot. And God wanted to have a relationship with mankind. We were created for relationship with God. Uh, and so in order to have a relationship, the other person has to have the choice whether or not they'll love you back. Okay? Uh, so we can all agree that uh, sometimes people choose to do the wrong things. And their choices will hurt others. So why does God let bad people do bad things? Well, if he was going to stop all bad things from happening, he would have to take away the free will of humanity. And, and would anybody here rather have been a robot? Programmed? No, I think we want to be uh, free. We want to be able to make choices. Okay, so that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus has broken the curse of sin. Through him, we can be freed from the curse of sin. And while in this life, we still temporarily experience the effects of sin, someday Jesus will punish those who do evil, so justice will be served. He will create a new heaven, a new earth that will be free from sin's touch, so there will be no more crying or sickness or death or pain. That's what heaven actually is. And I understand what it's like to hurt, but that's why we look forward to heaven and being with Jesus where there will be no more sin, where we will be saved from pain and suffering. And listen, if you want to experience that, there's only one way to get there. You have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So do you want to accept him and be free from sin? That's how I would respond to that. Here's the next question people ask. How can a loving God send people to hell? I'm, I'm basically giving you like a bunch of little mini sermons here today, right? I've, I've preached whole sermons on all these questions. How can a loving God send people to hell? Here's the simple answer. Everyone who goes to hell chose hell by rejecting Jesus. The good news is that God gave his only son to save people from hell. Okay, that's like the, the bottom line right there. But here's a little bit of a longer response. What would you say about a judge who never punished criminals? You'd say, that's a bad judge, right? And if God did not punish sin, he would be a bad judge. He has to punish sin in order to be a God of justice. Uh, and so some people will be like, man, I understand that. Okay, fine. Uh, I get why there needs to be a hell. But, you know, that makes sense for, like, really bad people, like, like." Osama bin Laden, yeah, and, and, and Hitler, I'm sure, and maybe my mother-in-law, uh, but, but not me, right? Not my grandma, like not good people. Like why, why do we go to hell? That just seems insane. It seems too intense, right? I can't accept a God who would send people to hell. 
And, and so that's where we got to correct the thinking that we are good and deserve good things. And this is where I would go into this in Romans 3 where it says, No one is righteous, not even one. No one does good, not a single one. I'm not a good person. Your grandma's not a good person. Like Mother Teresa wasn't a good person. We're not righteous. And, and here's a little bit of compassion for you. People are growing up in a world today that tells them we're, we're mostly good people. Like most people are basically good. And people walk around all their lives believing like I'm a good person. I, I know I am. I just believe it. I'm a good person. And that's why we need to be confronted with the truth of God's word which says no, you're not. And, and even if you feel like you're a good person, it doesn't matter because God says you're not. And he's God. And so if someone was like, I'm a good person, I would do this. I would do what Ray Comfort does, and I would ask him these questions. I would say, okay, well, have you ever told a lie? Yes. What does that make you? All right. Sometimes they'll be like, normal. Right. But what if, I, what if I told a lie? What would you call me? A liar, right? All right. Have you ever looked at someone lustfully who wasn't your spouse? All right. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Have you ever felt hate for someone or cursed them? Yes. Jesus said this, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. So by your own admission, you're a lying, adulterous murderer. So with that in mind, would you say that you've sinned? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, we all have. Well, Romans 6 says this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the headline is not that our God sends good people to hell. He doesn't. The headline is that God rescues bad people from hell through Jesus. And you don't have to go there. Everyone who goes to hell chooses hell. Hell is so bad, and it's forever. People will struggle with this. They'll be like, I just don't understand how that can be. Like, it's so bad, it's, it's forever. It seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's a, a struggle that people have. Okay, and so I want you to understand this reality. The level of the authority you transgress determines the level of punishment you receive. Okay, so if you sin against your parents, you'll get a spanking. And I'm pro-spanking, by the way. If you sin against the IRS, you'll go to jail because they're a higher level authority than your parents. And if you sin against the God of the universe, you go to hell. And people will be like, well, that's not fair that I have to accept Jesus or else I'll get sent to hell. And, you know, that'd be like if you were on the Titanic and was sinking, and I came to you and I said, hey, come with me. I've got a lifeboat. Oh, we got to go. And you were like, oh, that's not fair. I don't, I don't want to go on your lifeboat. I don't like those kinds of lifeboats. I shouldn't have to go with you and, and get on your lifeboat, right? Like, you wouldn't say that I sent that person to drown if they chose not to get on the lifeboat, right? Okay, so... People don't get to say, I'm not going to accept Jesus. It's not fair that I have to accept Jesus. Like, God sent the lifeboat. It's Jesus, and it's not his fault if people don't accept him. Let's remember this, right? And this is a bottom line of a lot of the questions people ask about God. God is not the one on trial here. You are. He is the judge, 
It's you that will be on trial one day, so you need to figure out how to be made right in God's sight. He doesn't need to be right in your sight. You need to be made right in his sight, and that can only happen through Jesus. The real question is, why would anyone reject God's rescue from hell? Okay, here's the next question. People will ask this. Okay, well, I hear you, but how do you know your religion is right? There are so many religions in the world. How do you know yours is right? Here's the simple answer. Because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. All right, now before I go forward, I'll say my, my compassionate insight on this is some people might ask this question because they're just genuinely afraid of making the wrong choice. They don't know the difference between all the different religions in the world, and so they could be suffering from paralysis by analysis, and they just don't know what they don't know, and so they don't realize how different Christianity is from all the other religions. And people don't always know how to process our level of certainty. Let me explain that. Progressive and liberal ideology is increasingly teaching people that it's wrong to be certain. You shouldn't be certain. Who do you think you are to think that you know the truth and everyone else is wrong? Truth is subjective. Who are you to tell me what's true for me? I was thinking this week about how God gives us our testimony. You cannot argue with the testimony of what God has done for you. Satan has counterfeited God's testimony, and he has made your truth the world's testimony. You can't argue with my truth, my subjective truth of what I believe is true. Uh, and so people will oftentimes struggle. Like, how can you be so certain that you're right and everyone else is wrong? Well, I want you to understand uh, Christianity is different than every other religion in the world. It's the only religion, first off, where the more you dig into it, the more you believe. Yes. The more you discover about Christianity, the more you trust. Yes. In Christianity, we want you to ask hard questions. We want you to research for yourself. I'm like, yes, please, you should do that. In every other religion, it's the opposite. The more you learn, the harder it is to believe. When you start asking hard questions, they're like, you need to stop asking all these questions. You just need to believe, brother. Okay, it's the opposite. We do not have blind faith as Christians. We don't need blind faith because all of the evidence lines up and makes it so easy to believe. You might start out with a lot of faith and only knowing a little bit, but the more you know, right, you only need a little bit of faith to believe in Jesus, like a little hop of faith. That's all it takes to jump in. Christianity is the only religion where the more you know, the less faith you need. Here's why. I'm going to explain the differences between Christianity and the other religions of the world, the two biggest differences. The first one is this. Christianity is the only grace-based religion. Every other religion ultimately boils down to a works-based system. Every other religion in the world has a list of works and good deeds you have to do to be saved. Muslims have to live out the five pillars of Islam to earn their way into paradise. Buddhists have to follow the eightfold path to eventually work their way into nirvana. Uh, even Mormons, they talk about grace, but it's grace contingent on works. Which is why in Mormonism there is an unspoken burden of perfection you have to live up to. And I know some of you are like, oh, you shouldn't talk about Mormons. I have Mormon friends. I do too. 
right? I've got dear Mormon friends who I love, and I can't avoid talking about this just because we live in Arizona. I must talk about it because we live in Arizona. So I feel like it's actually worth just touching on this for a second. Let me show you a passage from the Book of Mormon, okay? This is from 2 Nephi 25. This is not the Bible. This is from the Book of Mormon. It says this, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Do you see that difference right there? This is very, does that sound familiar to anyone? Right? Does anybody remember in Ephesians where it talks about how the enemy will try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth? Look at that. For by grace we are saved after all we can do. And if you really understand the teaching of what this means, I've actually read sermons by Mormon leaders and teachers explaining this verse. So in their own words, they talk about grace, but it's grace contingent on you doing your part. And I've had conversations with Mormon friends and Mormon missionaries, and I've said, well, how do you know that you've done all you can do? How do you know you've done enough to earn God's grace. And really, when you ask them this, it will always go down to this. They'll say, you don't know. They'll say, you don't know. You just have to try your best. You have to work hard to be good. You have to do the right things. You have to avoid sin. And then you just have to hope. See, this is a twisting of the truth. This is a twisting of grace. This reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul talks about works versus grace. And he uses the analogy that if you get a little bit of leaven into the dough, it'll eventually work its way through the whole batch. Okay, so works is a little bit of leaven. And if you get just a little bit of works into a grace-based religion, it becomes an entirely works-based religion. Do you see that? So this is why I feel heartbroken for my Mormon friends because they're playing a game that cannot be won. Let me show you the difference between that Mormon passage and Ephesians 2.8 in the Bible. Look at this. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. <laughs> Do you catch the difference there? Okay. So you see this, every works-based religion is ultimately rooted in pride. I will work my way to God. I will earn grace. I will deserve salvation. I'll prove how worthy I am. Christianity is the only religion where you're saved by humbling yourself and admitting you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. We have the only religion where the founders admit their weaknesses and doubts and sins in their own scriptures. Other religions they try to make, like Joseph Smith or Muhammad, sound perfect. They don't admit they ever did anything wrong. Right? Like Joseph Smith actually said this, I am greater than Peter, Paul, or Jesus. He says, I have done more to hold the church together than any of them. Muhammad said, I'm the best thing ever created. Not Christians. Peter was like, yeah, one time Jesus called me Satan. <laughs> and I denied even knowing him to a little girl. Paul said, yeah, I started out killing Christians until Jesus appeared to me and then I was willing to die for Christ. Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, like, I didn't even believe. 
until he showed before me and I, I could actually touch the scars myself, right? No other religions do this because they're all works-based. And so the founders have to present this idea that they were perfect. But when you dig into their backgrounds and you do the research, you see that they lived lives that weren't even upstanding by normal citizen standards. So would you rather carry the burden of works or receive the gift of grace? Christians, we do good works, but it's out of gratitude and love for God, not to earn his acceptance or to earn salvation or earn grace, okay? Here's the second thing that makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. Jesus died and rose again. We're the only religion where our guy is still alive. Okay, the only religion that was started by a real historical person who actually died and actually rose again. Every other religion has leaders who died and stayed dead. That sets us apart, wouldn't you agree? In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. So this was written by the apostle Paul. It's really interesting. Historians agree that this passage started out as an oral teaching that was spread amongst the earliest Christians just one or two years after Jesus left the earth. It's written in a way that they can tell this was an oral teaching that was passed around from the very beginning. That's important. It didn't start hundreds of years later that this legend began about Jesus rising from the dead. The very first Christians on day one became Christians because Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then all of this is true. If he did not rise from the dead, then this is all a pitiful lie. And that's why you need to understand that the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. There's a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel that I recommend uh, for you to read. For those of you who are like, ooh, I don't really read. Okay, there is also a movie version. You can watch it on uh, YouTube or Apple TV. And this will lay out the case for the resurrection of Christ. This book was written by a guy who was an atheist and an investigative reporter. And he set out to disprove Christianity because his wife kept getting on his nerves with, his, with her new faith. And the more he dug into it, he realized he couldn't help but believe himself. So you can read this book. I can't summarize the whole thing right now. But I'll point out a couple just awesome you know, little things that we, we know are true. So when the Apostle Paul wrote that passage, he said 500 people saw him, most of whom are still alive. He wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, and he was like, listen, a lot of the witnesses who saw him are still alive. Like, you can go and talk to them yourselves. Do you realize how big of a deal that is? Like, they, went to, they were able to verify that the eyewitness testimony about the risen Jesus was true. And if it was all made up, there would have been no shortage of people to give it away, right? You can't even get, like, two people to keep a secret in real life. 
You cannot get 500 people to keep a story straight. And, and one of the arguments is like, well, maybe they hallucinated, right? You're not going to get 500 people to have the same exact hallucination, right? It's impossible. Um, and then you think about his disciples, the 12 disciples, for example. They didn't make this up to get rich. They didn't make up this story to get power. They didn't steal the body of Jesus themselves and then make up the idea that he rose from the dead, okay? Because they didn't get privilege or power for their faith. They got persecution and execution for their faith, right? So you might lie to get a position of power or to get money, but you're not going to die for a story that you know is made up, amen? And then you look at guys like Paul, who he was persecuting and killing Christians one day as a devout Jew, and then he's like, I met Jesus, now he's preaching the resurrected Christ and willing to die for him. And Paul's like a real historical figure. Historians would even admit, like, yeah, you can't really explain how something like this would happen. Uh, And then 1 Corinthians 15, I like this, it says, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And so I want to just encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you ever start to wrestle with doubt, which all of us have wrestled with doubt at some point, I think, go back to the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection is true, you can believe. If the resurrection is true, the rest is true. And it's indisputable, I think. It's so easy to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Here's the next question. I'm going to keep moving because of time. How do you know you can trust the Bible? The simple answer is this. The Bible is the most well-preserved and accurate historical writing that's ever existed. And the evidence validates its trustworthiness. Listen, if you cannot trust the Bible's account then we'd have to throw out everything else we know from human history. And I've preached whole sermons on this, and I get into all the nerd stuff. I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary right now. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So the Holy Spirit worked through about 40 different writers over a period of 1,500 years, guys who lived in different places at different times who never met, and they just somehow happened to tell one congruous story. How is that possible that you'd get one consistent story from 40 different guys over 1,500 years? It's because there were 40 different writers but one author. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. And there is, listen, exponentially more evidence that Jesus is a real historical figure than there is that Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great ever existed. What we have today as the Bible has been accurately preserved from what was originally written. And I'm only going to give you a highlight of this, but we have over 24,000 manuscript copies of just the New Testament that date back to within 100 years of the original writings. Okay, Uh, That's very different than other ancient historical documents. And the original writings, they were written down within 20 to 50 years of Jesus' life which is important because historians say it usually takes about two generations for a legend to be created. The manuscripts that I'm referencing, 
uh, were transcribed by scribes. They were professional scribes who would painstakingly write down every letter, every word, every detail, and they would count the letters and words on the page. And if there were any errors, they would throw them out uh, because they knew that this was an important task that they had to accurately copy God's word. And so we're able to do this. We're able to take our modern-day Bible and we're able to take 2,000-year-old manuscripts and compare what's written there to what we're reading now. And guess what? Uh, There is 99.5% accuracy from the manuscripts to what we have now. And and you got to realize when there's that half percent of inaccuracy, we're able to identify that and fix it because there are, like, out of the 24,000 manuscripts, you'll find some where there's, like, a comma missing. Right or something like that, N- nothing that's significant at all. But the point is that we have an incredibly high degree of certainty that what we're reading is what was originally written. Another incredible thing I would recommend you research uh, would be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1946 by a 12-year-old Muslim boy in a cave when he went to look for his goat. Anybody got goat problems? They're always just running off on you, you know what I mean? So this boy discovered all these manuscripts that have been dated to 300 B.C., 300 years before Christ. And this cave had hidden scrolls. Every scroll, uh, every book of the Old Testament, except the book of Esther, and many, many copies of a lot of the books. And when uh, scientists and historians look at what was written 300 years before Christ, 2,300 years ago to what we have as the Old Testament today, it was the exact same. Okay, so we know that what we are reading is the same thing that was written over 2,000 years ago. Okay, again, I can't help it, but I got to compare it, uh, for example, to the Book of Mormon. Uh, Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon himself less than 200 years ago, and he said the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth. I have in my office a folder this thick with over 3,000 edits that have been made to the Book of Mormon since it was written. Doesn't seem very perfect, does it? All right, I'll move on because you're all getting a little awkward on me. (laughs) Another thing that's really worth pointing out is that the prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled prove it's God's word. This one doesn't get talked about enough. There are over 2,500 prophecies, specific prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled with no errors. 456 Old Testament prophecies just about the Messiah have been fulfilled. Specific things like that he would be born in Bethlehem and a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah, betrayed by a friend, that he would perform miracles and stand silent before his accusers, that his bones would not be broken, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would be spat upon and beaten and crucified, that he would die side by side with criminals. Okay, These things are indisputably specific prophecies written thousands, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Mathematicians estimate the statistical odds of these prophecies being fulfilled the way they were is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is 1 in 100 quadrillion. There is no other religious text of any other religion that has specific prophecies that came true like the Bible. Okay, 
Additionally, extra-biblical sources corroborate the Bible. That means other dudes who weren't even Christians wrote things that back up what the Bible tells us. We have historical documents from the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, and he wrote in the Antiquity of the Jews about events like King Herod's adulterous wife and the murder of John the Baptist and how the new Christians believed Jesus had risen from the grave. Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman historian, and he talked about the early Christians who believed Jesus had risen from the dead. Other Roman historians like Gaius Suetonius, the Jewish Talmud, all confirmed the accounts of the early church as recorded in scriptures. The people, people will say the Bible is so full of contradictions, and it's not. You need to understand that. The Bible has no contradictions. Once you understand the context of what's being described, there are no contradictions in the Bible. A contradiction is when two different things are said that cannot both be true. You understand that? Um, what we have sometimes in Scripture is that different writers give different versions of the same story. And what I mean by that is this. It'd be like if me and Amy went for a walk around our neighborhood and I said, we went for a great walk and we saw a lot of pretty trees. And Amy wrote to her friend, we went for a great walk and we saw a really cute dog. Okay, a lot of people that are skeptics would look at that and say, look, a contradiction. He said they saw trees. She said they saw a dog. But could both of those things be true? Exactly. The Bible is also the only ancient religious text that is consistent with modern science. I've, I love this. All right. I preached whole sermons on this. But without exception, every other religion has an ancient text with scientific errors in it. Like Hindu's text, it teaches that the earth is a flat triangle. The Quran teaches that the sun at nighttime sets in a muddy pool of water. Hindus and Chinese mythology and Native American people all wrote that the earth rests on the back of a giant turtle. <laughs> the Book of Mormon infamously taught that people with dark skin were cursed by God. That's one of the parts they edited out, not surprisingly. And it also claims that civilizations, humongous civilizations with millions of people existed in North America that there's never been a single shred of archaeological evidence for. Okay? But there is nothing in the Bible that contradicts scientific fact. Listen, even though the Bible was written by ancient men, it described many scientific laws and theories accurately that haven't even been discovered yet. Okay, how is that possible? It's because it was inspired by God. The Bible describes germs in sanitation before germ theory was discovered. The Bible describes how the air has weight the Bible talks about how the sun, even, and the planets are on an orbit. The sun is on an orbit going across the galaxy. The planets are on an orbit going around the sun. The Bible talks about how the skies have jet, spring, jet streams and how the seas have springs at the bottom of them. How would they know that, right? They were not deep sea diving in the Apostle Paul's day, right? The Bible talks about how the earth is round, Right? People didn't realize that until like a long time later. Okay? The Bible talks about how life is in the blood. In Leviticus, they bled George Washington on purpose before he died. They should have listened to the Bible, right? Uh, the Bible talks about how the earth is suspended by gravity, hanging on nothing. How the number of stars in the sky cannot be counted. Until Galileo invented the modern telescope, uh, astrologers believed there were only a thousand stars in the sky. 
but the Bible says you cannot count them. The Bible describes the recirculation of water in the hydrological cycle. It uses, uh, it uses language to describe these scientific realities before they were even discovered because it was inspired by God. And lastly, it's, because, and it's really awesome that all of archaeology confirms what the Bible says. Okay, that means you can actually go on the other side of the planet and see real places the Bible talks about. This is not like a fairy tale we believe in, like once upon a time in a land far, far away. No, you can fly to this land and see a lot of these places the Bible talks about, right? Um, Nelson, Glo- I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Nelson, uh, <laughs> who appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and he was considered one of the greatest archaeologists ever, he said this, no archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements made in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description, watch this, has often led to amazing discoveries. See, it's actually way easier to believe the Bible and to believe God than you even realized. God's not scared of our questions. It's normal to ask questions. It's normal to sometimes doubt But if, listen, if there were holes to be poked in Christianity, people way smarter than us would have found them a long time ago. Remember that in all this back and forth and debating that might take place to keep pointing people to Jesus. And that's what I want to close with and leave you with today. Keep pointing people to Jesus. I preach this message maybe to give you a little bit of confidence as you share your faith and also to bolster your faith, because I think the more confident you are, the more willing you'll be to share. But in all the debates and arguments that could be had, keep taking people back to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 2. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, look, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Look, some of you, you're like, man, people ask me questions and I don't know what to say. But here you have a guy, Paul, who's one of the smartest guys probably living in his day. And he's basically telling us, hey, just keep it simple. Like when I was in the army, we would say, keep it simple, stupid, right? And Paul's saying, just keep it simple. Just take them back to Jesus, the one who died on the cross for their sins and and rose again, that's a pretty big deal, and, and it gives you a, a, a lot to believe in. And, and listen, you actually don't even have to have all the answers. You don't have to know all, all the responses to all the questions people might ask in order to be a Christian. Uh, it's actually very simple to be saved. You just got to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. You have to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. That is faith. It means trust. I am trusting in Jesus to save me. And if you trust in Jesus, you receive the grace that comes from God. And grace is a Christian word that basically communicates the idea that through Jesus you're forgiven, you are favored, you are adopted into God's family, and you receive the inheritance that Jesus earned. Okay, so being, being favored by God, being a recipient of grace, right, it's the greatest thing you could ever enjoy, uh, and it's only possible through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'm grateful that the Lord has led us to believe. 
Uh, maybe there are people here today who want to put their faith in Jesus. You just had the evidence laid out before you. Um, and if you've been struggling with faith, what a be- there's no better day, than I think, than right now to take that last step and cross the line and believe in Jesus. So let's do that right now. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And I'll say this uh, first. Maybe you already considered yourself a Christian, but you've been struggling with doubt. And you didn't really know if you believed or not. Maybe you wanted to, like the person who said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief, Lord. And maybe right now today, God has just confirmed in you the faith that you hold to. And uh, belief, faith, is springing up inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we pray this next prayer, will you just pray this with me and just confirm to the Lord that you really do believe. And if you're here and you've never prayed this prayer or you've never meant this prayer, then you can also pray with me and accept Jesus as Lord for the first time right now. Let's pray. God, believe, just pray this with me. You can just repeat it after me. Just pray, God, I ask you to save me. I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus to save me. I believe that he is the son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose again. I believe that in Jesus I am forgiven. I believe that in Jesus I am adopted as your child. I believe that in Jesus I have eternal life. I thank you, God, for loving me, and I ask that you would help me to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.